Colson Whitehead, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Harlem Shuffle is the new novel. It's out now and it is fantastic. I think Ray Carney is now my favorite Colson Whitehead character. He's such a great guy. But can you just set up this book for listeners? So I've always been a fan of heist movies. And for me, you know, the heist genre comes from film. So when I was little watching Saturday afternoon matinees of Dog Day Afternoon or the Taking of Pelham 123, stayed with me. And I always feel bad when these guys pull off a heist. They get the $2 million diamond. Half the gang has died. And then they bring it to the fence. And the fence says, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. And it always seems like such a betrayal. So I thought a fence would be a good person for a protagonist. Who are these guys who are brokers between the criminal world and the straight world? Um, these sort of liminal creatures. I started doing research, read a book called The Fence, a sociological study of the fence subculture. And a lot of these guys have fronts. So they reupholster furniture. In the, in the front and in the back, you know, they have all these stolen goods, fixed appliances. So I hit upon the idea of a man who has a furniture store in Harlem and is an upstanding member of the community, has a wife and kids, a strong family life. He's pulled himself up from his bootstraps, but has this criminal side. And his name is Ray Carney. So, you know, there are heists and there are capers. But for me, it's really a, a character study of this person in three moments in his life. So 1959, 1961, 1964. How did you settle on those years? You know, I always make these random choices and then I end up paying off uh, the more I think about them. So I was thinking about these robbers, they're corrupt. What New York moment could they exploit for a robbery? So the black of 1977, the police riots of 1940s. And I settled on 64 because it was closer to my time. And I was really exhausted by doing a lot of historical research. And I knew it would be a heist and he would be sort of drawn into the heist as a reluctant fence. But I kept coming up with stories for him. I decided, okay, three stories. And what period? In the first one in 1959, he gets pulled into this heist and starts to embrace his criminal nature. In 61, he's going back and forth. And then in the third one, I sort of, you know, hopefully bring it all together. His rejection, embrace, acknowledgement, disavowal of his criminal self. One of the things that's so great about Harlem Shuffle, too, is this constant balancing act that Ray has to do between the straight world and his family and his in-laws, who I want to get to in a second, but also his criminal life. There's this idea in the book that maybe the straight world isn't as straight as they think it is. There's a lot of underhanded dealing. Yeah, when, when, <laughs> once he starts getting involved more in the criminal lifestyle, right. you know, he sees how it actually works. And so he's driving around with this corrupt cop and the detective saying, oh, this bakery is actually a front for a craps game. You know, he's right. going around making his collections. And a lot of the things he, that Ray passes every day, these establishments are actually criminal fronts. There's a secret city behind the city he knows. And that's true in terms of the criminal world, but also you know, the history of Harlem. If you walk through the neighborhood and see a lovely townhouse from 1890s, there have been waves of immigrants who have lived in that building. It was, there was German, Irish, Italian, Jewish. All these, all these generations have come to New York, come to Harlem to make themselves, and they, they move away. So all the facades, whether they're hiding criminal activity or just the churn of American ambition, have these secret lives. But Ray might be the most honest character in this book. Um, he's, uh, 
<laughs> I mean, he might. He might. There's a banker that absconds with everyone's money. There's some stuff that goes on at the Dumas Club, which is supposed to be all of the upstanding citizens running things. And these guys, they can tell themselves fairy tales, but they're not as upstanding as they think they are. I, I think, you know, what the, the three-part structure allowed me to do was like zoom in to the criminal underclass and then pull back. And then we get the sort of well-to-do members of Harlem, the bankers, the doctors, and we see their corruption. And then we pull back again in the third section and see who actually runs the city. So, you know, I think what I like about classic detective fiction and, and movies like Chinatown is that, you know, you think it's one thing and then you pull back and you actually see the real systems of power. The second section of this book is called Dorvay. Can we talk about that for a second and explain what that is? Because it's great. So apparently before we had everyone wired with electricity, you're a farmer, you work all day, the sun goes down. Well, it's time for bed. And the body's rhythm was such that you would go to sleep around twilight and wake up around midnight, be up for a couple of hours and then have the second phase of sleep. And it's written about by medieval scholars. Ben Franklin used to keep this schedule, but it went away once we were able to, to stay up late. So I came across an article about it in you know, Slate or the New York Times. They both run pieces about it. And I was like, I'm going to use this someday. So years passed. And then it's that midnight watch from 11 a.m. to like 1 a.m. or 2 is really prime time, crime time. It's the domain of criminals, alcoholics, and writers. And I sort of recognize it as a time of industry sort of carved out of normal life, you know, insomniacs. You're, you're awake, the whole world's asleep, and it's a sort of, you know, secret pocket out of the day. And so, so it's a metaphor for uh, the criminal life, the, the midnight life in, in the second section as uh, Carney capitulates to his ancient bodily rhythms and, um, and uses that time to, uh, well, get revenge. You've talked about how film influenced this book, you know, taking a Pelham 123 dog day afternoon. But can we talk about some of the writers that influenced Harlem Shuffle as well? I mean, I feel like there's some Chester Himes in here. I know Donald Westlake slash Richard Stark is a big influence for you. Can we talk about his books for a minute? Because he seems to have fallen off of people's radar. The Intuitionist takes off from detective novels. And at that time in the mid 90s, I was reading a lot of James Elroy and Walter Mosley, Elmore Leonard, and definitely, you know, hopefully I learned a lot from them. With this book, I was like, okay, I'm going to write this crime novel. I should see, I haven't been keeping up on detective fiction. I should see what's out there. And I realized quickly, I really didn't care about detectives or cops. I really cared about the crooks. And so Richard Stark was very instructive. He has, there are 20 something novels about this guy named Parker, who's a, he's a very dead affect. I would call him a sociopath. Uh, but he's also an incredibly gifted thief. And his deadpan humor, the way he sees the world, like practical, but also impractical because he's always trying to make these big scores, was very appealing. In my book, there's a character named Pepper. And Pepper, for me, is like a, a Richard Stark type of character. Chester Himes, like you mentioned, his Harlem is, is a sociopathic Harlem. Everyone is a con man or someone being conned. There are more sort of normal types in, in my book, but definitely in the Himes cosmology, no one is innocent. Even if you're a victim of a con, it's probably because you were trying to make a quick buck and, and cutting corners. That was great. And then Patricia Highsmith with her Ripley novels. Carney rejects, accepts his criminal side. And Ripley, especially in the first Highsmith novel, he's a sociopath. 
he's homicidal, he's queer, but can't actually express these things. You know, the narrator is in his head, but he's in, in so much denial about his true nature. And there's this dance between what he'll admit to himself and what he'll refuses to admit, which is very interesting. And I, and I think I use that to inform Carney's creation. Yes, I do sell some used items sometimes, but <laughs> I'm not actually a fence. I'm not actually a criminal. Does Carney know how much he lies to himself? I mean, that is part of the fun as he's telling himself stories. He is lying to himself, but he's not a bad guy. He's just trying to do better by his family. You know, he's trying to achieve that you know New York dream of like the better apartment. There's always a better apartment around the corner, a few blocks away in a better neighborhood. And if you work hard enough, you'll get that apartment and your whole life will change. And then, of course, you move in and it's like, there's no closets. You can hear the subway. So that part is autobiographical. I'm always like, moving into some apartment. I'm like, yes. And then it's like, what's that rumbling? It's like, oh, the train is <laughs> two floors beneath me and everything rattles. How much time did you spend in Harlem recreating this world? Uh, it was great. I mean, there's the, the foot, you know, the footwork of, of walking aimlessly around Harlem and, oh, Carney could live there or that's where his office is. And I lived there, you know, up to the age of five. I lived on 139th Street, but I haven't spent a lot of time there. So it was really, there's so much of it that was uncharted for me. Coogan's Bluff, Mount Morris Park, now Marcus Garvey Park. And then, so that was great, just relearning the, um, uh, the landscape of Harlem. And then just going to New York Times archives, you know, what can I use from the big stories in 1961, 1964? And then on one side is... Robert Wagner running for re-election, and the other side of the newspaper is a big ad for like Siemens Furniture, and I would I would take the language of the advertisements for you know Ray Carney's store. Um, there are memoirs of of uh, gangsters. Bumpy Johnson was a big Harlem gangster, and his wife wrote a memoir like setting the record straight, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, there's a lot of slang, and she explains how the numbers racket works. And so I got a lot of nuts and bolts from books like that. And William Burroughs, his book Junkie, he was a sort of petty thief and heroin addict in New York in the 40s and 50s. And in high school and college, I lived on 101st and, and West End. And he writes about this 103rd and Broadway as this big sort of heroin den. You work for the city, you have a straight job. But you catch you catch the one train, get off at 103rd Street, you know, cop your dope, and then go back. And um, so a lot of functioning addicts would would score at this place on 103rd Street. So I get language from him. I get the atmosphere of of Broadway and that stretch, and and use it for my book. What's the editing process like for you? I mean, you had been working on this book when you discovered the story that became Nickel Boys, the Dozier School. Sort of. I mean. Um, I came across the story of the Dozier School and thought, mm -hmm. oh, there's a book there. Mm -hmm. And it was 2014, the same year that I was like, oh, I'll write a heist book. And the Underground Railroad was so heavy, I thought the, the next logical thing to do would be to write this book. Um, so I was taking a lot of notes and, and plotting, you know, the various schemes. And then once Trump came into power, I had to reckon with where is America heading? Should I be optimistic or, or pessimistic? And that philosophical debate played out in the Nickel Boy. So I put Harlem Shuffle aside and worked on that. But that meant when I my schedule was clear, I had all these all these notes. So it was great. So in terms of editing, I treat them all as novellas. I feel you know really great when I finish 1959. It's the the story is sewn up, and I think of 
it's constructed enough that you could actually read them all alone. Uh, although together they give a portrait of Carney in the sixties. And in terms of editing, I started off as a journalist and I would always hand in this really crappy error filled copy. Cause I would get up at 7am to meet my 10am deadline and just like scribble, scribble, scribble. And then the copy editor would eat me alive. My editor would eat me alive. So I do so much editing now just to spare my editor. <laughs> it's very elementary things. And I think I had a breakthrough with like self-editing with Underground Railroad, just sort of what's extraneous and what's not. Where am I being exuberant in that kind of postmodern way? Where am I serving the story? Whereas there is a place for those exuberant postmodern narrators, like in John Henry days, that kind of pinchiny kind of style. There's also you know a nice place for a, a clear linear style. And definitely with um, the Nickel Boys in this book, I've enjoyed working in that mode. Did you know where this book was going when you sat down to write? Clearly, Ray Carney sort of shows up fully formed and you're having a ball writing this book. I mean, it's just obvious in the pages. It's it's obvious in the story. But I wasn't expecting the end that I got. And I'm really delighted that that's what it was. But did you know? I do know the ending before I start. I plot it all out. The mechanics of the Dorvay section, you know, I don't know, you know who these various minor characters are until they show up and it makes sense. I know somebody's gonna take the photographs, you know, you know, like I know, but I don't know who what he sounds like. But the biggest change from my conception to writing was really Carney. I think after having protagonists and Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys, people who are so so subject to institutional uh oppression, so uh not in control of their own fate. I mean, immediately Carney had more agency and he wins. Uh, he's not subject to the same forces as those other two. So I knew that he would be a much different character and um, he might pull it off, you know, his various heists. His wife is awesome too. Elizabeth is great. She's very funny and very smart and really not having it with other people, especially her dad, when her dad is being difficult <laughs> or her mom is being difficult to Carney. She's like, yeah, you guys can stop. This is, this is, don't do this. Well, I think, you know, the Nickel Boys has a small cast and Elwood mm -hmm. and Turner, the two boys are playing off each mm -hmm. other. So having a bigger cast with Carney's cousin, Freddie, who like gets them into these schemes and Pepper, we need someone who can show Carney how it actually works as a criminal. So Pepper mm -hmm. is, becomes this like POV character. And then his wife, they all, all three of these people bring out different aspects of Carney. So I've had protagonists in the last few books who have been loners, not with families, and they're trying to make a family, rejecting people who reach out to them. So having someone who has love in his life and has the kind of agency that that allows played out pretty quickly. Did anything surprise you while you were writing Harlem Shuffle? Not surprising. There's, there was the delight in the language and, and using the city. And then I had to plan these capers, do the capers work. And so my first reader, you know, I just want to know, like, does this heist make sense? Is, are, is, this like, is this like a really dumb heist or is it suspenseful? You know, my Google searches are totally a mess now. It's just like, how long does it take to dissolve a body in acid? You know, going to Quora or... Uh, <laughs> Ask.com. Ask.com. Like, how do you how do you dump a body so it doesn't get found? So I have to, these are heisters, so I have to make convincing heists. And I've written books that are completely plotless, like Sag Harbor. So working a different kind of muscle was, was fun. You're sort of famous for these epic playlists that you make while you're working. What was the playlist like for this book? It's always, you know, the same thing, but it's more songs come into it. Okay. 
so the big addition was this band, the OCs, who's like a like a San Francisco neo uh, garage band, and they they put out a, two records a year. So you know, 50, I have one my one work playlist which is fifty VOC songs. But Harlem Shuffle refers to this nineteen sixty three single. Uh, the Stones covered it, but I'm not referring to that cover version. And it's uh, one of those songs where it's like you move to the left. It's like a, a dance instruction song, but it has this weird menacing tone throughout it. And so people are going to break into dance or a knife fight at any moment in the song. So I didn't have a title yet. And then that song came out. I was like, oh, yes, it's going to be called Harlem Shuffle. What have you been reading lately that you're excited about? Well, I've been glad that I can work. You know, I think writers, my writer friends have had different casualties in lockdown. I've been able to work, and but I haven't really been able to read except for except for work. So I've just been reading crime novels and New York City histories, memoirs of gangsters and stuff like that. I'm hoping that will break soon. You know, I can go back to pleasure reading. I pulled off a reread of The Bluest Eye, I think because it was short. And I was like, I can do it. It's a short novel. <laughs> do it. Uh, there's some biggies coming out this fall, like Anthony Dover's book and Richard Powers. And I love those guys. So hopefully that'll be inspiration to break out of my rut. They're both fantastic. The new books oh, are, they're totally worth it. What do you want readers to know about Harlem Shuffle or Ray or? Oh, I mean, um, yeah, hopefully there's the pleasure of the heist movie, which I adore. You know, Ocean's Eleven, there are these handsome guys and they can afford to bring in a electromagnetic pulse to shut down all the Las Vegas casinos. And that's one way of doing a heist. Then there's like the low fidelity way, which I embrace. And so Robert Duvall has a great early 70s movie called The Outfit, which is based off a Richard Stark movie. Um, Walter Matthau had a great run in The Taking of Pelham 123, which is like a New York heist movie. And uh, Charlie Varick, he's like a robber. So all these kind of like American lo-fi crime movies that hopefully I've captured the pleasures of. And then, you know, Carney is a new character for me. I had a lot of fun. You know, I, I handed my book into my editor last summer and then immediately started writing more Carney stories. So, so the next book is going to be Carney in the 70s, following his progression as a father and criminal. And usually, you know, I write a book and it's like a year and a half plotting, planning, writing, then I'm on to the next thing. And with this, you know, halfway through Harlem Shuffle, I knew that I wanted to pursue the story more. So I've written two more Carney novellas, and then I'll pick it up again in the winter when I'm done sort of traveling. So having a character and a story that I live with for, for years on end is new to me and it's been really rewarding. That's awesome. I cannot wait for more Ray Carney stories, especially oh. New York in the 70s. We need more. People have done the 80s. New York in the 70s was, it was New York in the 70s. And yeah, need, that, that, that's my more. first New York. Just being, it's like it's dirty. Everyone's talking about, about crime <laughs> and it's a depressing place. So I've inserted Carney and Pepper and Elizabeth in that place. But it is weird, like writing a sequel to a book that has, hasn't come out yet. So it's like, if everyone hates this book, I'm just like some weird jerk. Here's my sequel to the book everyone hated. Like, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, I think the book is good. And obviously, and obviously that didn't deter me, but it is weird just to like, here I am, yeah, writing this book. <laughs> I really cannot wait to see what Ray Carney does next. Colson Whitehead, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The new novel is Harlem Shuffle, and it's out now. Excellent. Thanks for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes and Noble podcast. I'm James. 
And I'm Margie. And we're here this week with your TBR Top Off. We're going to add three books to your to-be-read list this week based on this week's interview with Colson Whitehead and the book Harlem Shuffle. So we picked out three books for you to add to your list. And we're here at our home store in Northville, Michigan, in the Metro Detroit area. You can follow us on Instagram at bnnorthvillemi or stop in and see us and stop into your local Barnes & Noble for a book recommendation for something you're going to love. Let us find you your next favorite book. Let me talk your ear off. (laughs) We will pilot high for you. We have three books today and I got one and then Margie's going to go with two after that. Sound good? Sounds great. The first one that I have for you is a book that is actually based in Detroit. It's by Alice Randall, and it's called Black Bottom Saints. It's recently out in paperback. Black Bottom is a neighborhood in predominantly Black Detroit that was demolished in the early 1950s and 60s, mostly for an expressway that kind of goes through the middle of the city. It survived during the Great Depression and World War II. Some of the greatest American music and some of the rich history that came out of that neighborhood is kind of the big theme in this book in Black Bottom Detroit. There were so many nightclubs and restaurants and just so much culture that was in that community. Big band and jazz artists such as Billie Holiday, Sam Cooke, Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, so many more. Aretha Franklin's father was a mainstay in the neighborhood. He was the reverend at a church. So many other things to learn about Black Bottom Detroit. And it's such an incredible story there. So Alice Randall has taken this and put it into the form of a novel. So she's actually from Detroit. And funny side note, this author began her career as a songwriter and wrote a number one hit for Trisha Yearwood, the country artist. I think that's amazing. Amazing. She now teaches at Vanderbilt University, where she teaches courses on Black Detroit, soul food, African-American children's literature, and many other things. This is her fifth novel, and she tells it through the voice of Ziggy Johnson. So on his deathbed in 1968, he was an MC, a columnist, but he's telling the story of Black Bottom Detroit by writing kind of a Saints Day book of 61 of his friends. This includes Joe Lewis, Nat King Cole, Della Reese, and many other folks. He writes these little profiles of each of them, and it all comes together to form one cohesive novel. What's great is that you can interact with this book. There is a barcode on the back that you can scan and listen to the music from the time on a Spotify playlist. And at the end of each section too, there's a libation recipe. So you can actually make a cocktail to to read along with the book and listen to the music, which is great. So a lot of ways to interact and really get into the history that is in this wonderful novel. So We encourage you to check this one out, add it to your list. It is Black Bottom Saints by Alice Randall. And Margie's up next. What do you got? All right. Awesome. So I picked a couple of titles that like Harlem Shuffle and like Black Bottom Saints really depend on their settings as a kind of character. So novels where location is as important as action. The first one I picked is Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. And honestly, I could have picked the other Stuart Turton as well, just saying Seven and a Half um, Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle would also work for this theme. But Devil in the Dark Water takes place in 1634 as Samuel Pipps, the world's greatest detective, is being transported from the Dutch East Indies back to Amsterdam, accused of a terrible crime that he may or may not have committed. 
He is accompanied by his loyal bodyguard, his greatest foe, a mysterious aristocrat, and a host of other passengers and sailors. One of the most important aspects of this story, though, is the ship itself, the Sardam, which, shortly after departing land, seems to be whispering to the passengers, hinting at three unholy miracles. Is there a demon on board? The claustrophobic nature of being trapped in this supernaturally malicious vessel is almost too much for the passengers to stand. And it leaves us wondering, will unholy miracles come to pass? If there's no demon, who's responsible for the misfortunes of those on board? And if you are anything like me, you will tear through this twisty-turny, atmospheric story in a fever of excitement to discover the truth. It is a nonstop read. That sounds great. My least favorite word, unputdownable, but you know, when the <laughs> word fits, the word fits. You gotta use it when it fits. <laughs> the second title that I decided to go with is called At Night All Blood is Black. It is by David Dio. This novel just won the International Booker Prize this year and the LA Times Book Prize, and for a very good reason. So set in Senegal during World War I, the story revolves around Alpha, a Senegalese man that is fighting with the French army. When his friend is mortally wounded, Alpha is faced with an impossible choice and ends up wallowing in disgust at what he sees as his own cowardice and cruelty. The country of Senegal in this story is incredibly important as it was already swallowed by the French thirst for empire and then becomes a battlefield for a cause that dooms them to more of the same. Alpha's psyche starts to break from reality in this arena of brutality as he crosses enemy lines to perform gruesome missions. So daring is he that his comrades begin to believe he's not a hero, but a sorceress devourer of souls transformed by the violence around him. And we're left with the question, can Alpha ever make amends to his dead friend and find himself again? This book is dark, I won't lie, but it is gracefully artistic and a just really incredible exploration of war, race, masculinity, colonialism. And even when you feel disturbed, you will not want to look away. And that is At Night, All Blood is Black by David Diop. Also one of Barack Obama's picks for his summer reading 2021 list. That is correct. Man with good taste. Those are our three books for you this week to add to your TBR list. That's your TBR top off. We hope that you'll enjoy those and come and see us for some more recommendations at your local Barnes and Noble. My name is James and you can follow me at James Reading Books on Instagram. And I am Margie. You can follow me at Margie Bookbrain. And that's it for your TBR top off this week. We'll see you next time on Port Over, the Barnes and Noble podcast. Bye, everybody. Happy reading. Port Over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.